Sometimes we hear of someone who says, I finally picked up the Bible and I read it cover to cover. The Jew who hears this nods approvingly, but raises one eyebrow. Since meaning comes from turning each chapter and each verse and each word over and over, we are rightly concerned what might be attributed to the Torah without pausing to consider what speaks against one's first instinctive understanding. So we take the case of Sarah, skin afflictions, open wounds, pus, severe rashes, other kinds of afflictions. The Kohen examines a person, and if they are not almost healed, they are still Tameh, they're ritually impure. And Tameh essentially means that the person cannot go to the temple and handle Truma offerings. And the Torah seems to be judging people. They're being punished for being sick. This is why people don't like religion. Judgmental, it's negative, it's, it's exclusionary. Just yesterday I was watching my family's favorite YouTuber. His name is Mark Rober. It's amazing. He's a scientist who, who does all these videos explaining how the world works and it's just fascinating. And it was a very powerful video about a new campaign to raise money for autism. Turn to the kids, we're going to donate, we're going to watch some of it, and we'll do that together as a family activity of giving Sadaka. I was really excited. And yet he had to throw in to his lines, he said, you know, regardless of religion and politics, you know, your need to break yourselves into tribes. You know, couldn't you have just said that autism affects everybody? Did you really have to say, you know, and remember you religious people who have this need to break yourself into tribes. I even don't know if that's the right thing to say about politics. I don't know if people marching for workers' rights are just expressing their terrific need to uh, divide themselves off into a tribe. So just to make a beautiful plea for an amazing charity, he has to say that religion reflects our need to break ourselves up and exclude others. What, what if we don't read the Torah with a modern bias against religion? That religion is about exclusion and judgment of the other. That this is not the basis of the exclusion of the Mitzorah. So how should we read the Torah? Assume people then were a lot like people now. So how would they be like us? Well, what if it's not that it was cruel to prevent them from going to the temple? What if it is kind of true then and true now that a lot of people don't want to go to temple? As we've done in some of our study sessions together since I got here, I'd, I'd like to use the word leave with a capital L to describe Tameh. So then instead of bereavement, Tameh becomes bereavement leave and, and sick leave and disability leave and maternity leave. They're all things that we're fighting for. There's no reason to think it cruel and exclusionary to say that someone who is sick doesn't go to work or to school until they're well. Maybe people at all times weren't trying to break down the walls to get into the temple. Maybe going to temple isn't about satisfying one's personal needs and desires. I remember working with day schools earlier in my life. Since I was a graduate student and not yet a rabbi, people would say things in front of me I don't think they would say anymore. They would say things like, couldn't we just do bar bat mitzvahs in the day school? I mean, after all, then we wouldn't need to be a member of a synagogue. How often have I heard in my life that if only the JCC would offer more family programming and maybe a bit more around the holidays, my need to identify as a Jew would be satisfied without needing to go to the temple. How often have I heard a Jew say they get enough Judaism from their job? Maybe they work in Jewish studies or um, they're a teacher or from another place, maybe their kids preschool or day school that they don't really have the bandwidth for another community. 
How often have I heard someone from, and take a breath, from Chabad, they proudly declare they're not synagogues. It's, it's, it's a point of pride. Yeah, they do all the services. They've got an ark with the Torah in it. They've got Chumashim and Sidorim. They do sacred study on Shabbos, and they conduct all Jewish life cycle events. But chas v'shalom, don't call us a synagogue. Don't call us a temple. And do I blame them for saying this? No. They're trying to be heard. They're trying to overcome people's reactions to the word, got to go to temple. According to the book of Numbers, it's the other cultures' temples that people wanted to go to. Ours was never really the entertainment temple. I've sometimes quoted Ross Duthat from the New York Times, and sometimes negatively, because I feel like for the New York Times to say religion is represented by Ross Duthat, I, I wish they had a little bit of a bigger team. And so I'm going to make peace with Ross today, because I'm going to quote a little bit from his last editorial, which I thought was pretty good. Because if my point is that maybe people then aren't so different than people now, which is that it's not like they were going to temple because it was so like they, they couldn't wait to go and they felt so excluded if they couldn't. But rather, he points out that now fewer than half of Americans from a new Gallup poll, fewer than half of Americans claim membership in a church, synagogue or mosque, fewer than half. And the fall has been swift from 70% in 1999 to 47% in 2020. And lately, the trend has inspired some more anxiety about a future where the impulses of religion are poured into politics instead. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote what he says about it and put it out there for consideration. I've been considering it now for the week that I've been sitting with it. He says this indicates institutional faith's general weakness, its limited influence, its subordinate position to other personal affiliations from partisanship. Absolutely. You know, if we identify politically, then, then that's our community. To ethnic identity, to sports, to superhero fandom. And he says a key piece of this weakness, and this is his thesis, is religion's extreme marginalization within the American educated. So deep is the secularization been about among the highly educated that people who would once have become priests and ministers and rabbis become psychologists and social workers and professors. I remember when I, when I went to Princeton that they, they were quoting that it used to be that like 10% of the best and brightest of Princeton would become ministers. He says people might once have run missions now go to work for NGOs. And people who have, uh, who have accumulated masses of wealth, um, whereas once they would have funded religious charities, often they start secular foundations. They want to make grants. He says, as a Christian inhabitant of this world, I often try to imagine what it would take for the highly educated to get religion. There are certain ways in which its conversion doesn't seem imaginable, a lot of, which is a shame. A lot of progressive ideas about social justice, I agree with this, still make more sense as part of a biblical framework, which among other things might temper the contemporary prosecutorial tone, temper it with forgiveness, and with hope in the social justice core. But we know the obstacles are considerable. One problem is that whatever its internal divisions, the American educated class is deeply committed to a moral vision that regards emancipated, self-directed choice as essential to human freedom and to the good life. The tension between this worldview and thou shalt not, commandments that may deny a person's expression of their own autonomy, it's gonna be hard to bridge no matter what because the American ethic of authenticity makes it hard for people to simply live with certain hypocrisies and self-contradictions. We're all living contradictions. 
it is the virtue to know what you're living and to examine them, to discuss them, make that tension a point for growth, or is it to pretend that we can live without the contradictions that we're living? Really, he says so much of our basic worldview is scientism, which regards religious belief as fundamentally anti-rational, miracles as superstition, and the idea of a personal God is really just wishful thinking. And when spiritual ideas creep back into this culture, it's often in the form of wellness or self-help disciplines or enthusiasms like astrology or, or something else, where there's always a certain deniability about whether you're really invoking a spiritual reality, whether you're really committed to a metaphysical belief or you're just playing around. You know, the way I feel is that serious religion has always been about living in the balance of intellectual humility, about the limitations of our paradigms of reality, of supplementing our normal paradigms about how things work in the everyday world, and we understand cause and effect and all of that, but supplementing them with our moments of insight, those challenging moments that go beyond the crudeness of our concepts of causality and what can only qualify as being potentially real. But we still embrace skepticism and intellectual rigor as a check on credulity and manipulation. I mean, I, I often find it's in a religious community that in a way you're more challenged to like defend your metaphysical playing around. You know, if I say something like, well, I actually believe on Friday night, there's this like metaphysical infusion of this divine attribute. I'm more likely in a Jewish community to get people to say, whoa, 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 you got to prove that to me. I think that's ridiculous. But if it's just like, you know, I'm posting on my Facebook page that I'm playing a little, playing around with a little Kabbalah, no one's going to be like, what do you mean? I'm going to challenge you on that. How can you defend that? It's okay. If someone has an experience that calls unbelief into question, this, their association of traditional religion with sexual prohibitions, bigotry, and scandal is often enough to keep them away. And we understand that. So Ross says, alternatively, if they feel drawn by a desire for community or moral formation to experiment with church going, Maybe in a community that's liberal or it's seeker sensitive rather than reactionary, still sometimes their drive for this science authenticity that makes it hard for them to persevere, especially if we're talking about getting up early in the morning to perform ritual. And he says, I don't know how to break that pattern, but he would like to think that it's possible to get over the bias against the faults of organized religion and exclusion and somehow invite people in to the beauty and wonder and commitments that it entails. Science has undercut some religious ideas once held with certainty, but our supposedly disenchanted world remains the kind of world that inspired religious belief in the first place, a miraculously ordered and law-bound system that generates conscious beings who can mysteriously unlock its secrets, who display godlike powers in miniature, and also sometimes a streak of evil inclination and whose lives are constantly buffeted by hard to explain encounters and intimations of transcendence. To be dropped into such a world and not be persistently open to religious possibilities seems a little bit more like prejudice than rationality. He says, my anthropological understanding of my secular neighbors fails when it comes to the indifference with which some of them respond to religious possibilities or for that matter, to mystical experiences they themselves have had. So I said I was preaching to the converted and, and y'all are the converted because you're, you're here. So if my thesis, and this is like the kids version, is that, you know, 
not everyone in human history were like trying to get into the temple. And so the fact that people were on leave from going, like being on leave from going to school or to work, is it mainly exclusionary? Or is going to temple meant to be something else than an experience that feels personally and immediately beneficial to one's own interests? When people ask me about going to synagogue, and I find going to temple humanizing. I find I can pray alone, but to pray among others reminds me that others exist. It humanizes us to realize there are others in this world. It gives us a chance that I wouldn't have had sitting at home and praying to give, to give to others, to see how they're doing, to check in on them, to give them care. I never really liked praying with just a whole bunch of people my exact same age. Why? Because it didn't feel like I'm having community, that I'm, I'm being humanized by by the dignity of being around all kinds of people with different kinds of dignity. And so I find it humanizing. I'll close with this. I, I'm a rabbi and I participate in slandering the temple and the synagogue, I, but even just by my lack of talking. You know, if someone says, you know, rabbi, all the interesting stuff is happening outside temples. It's all happening with these other kinds of things. Yeah, you know, of course, let's, let's tell me all about them. It's, you know, it's all in the grant-making world where they're starting startups and stuff like that. Wouldn't happen in legacy institutions like yours. Or someone lectures me about anti-racism or, or lectures me about not being pro-Israel enough or something like that. I, and I don't say things enough like, well, excuse me, do you even know what kind of anti-racist stuff we do at synagogue? Do you even know what we do at synagogue? When was the last time you were at synagogue? I don't say that enough because... And I did say it once this past year, and someone said, well, I don't go, but I'm sure that you, you don't do that stuff. And I'm like, yes, we do do that stuff. What do you think we talk about? I mean, for Mark Rober saying, with all the problems of religion, but I'm talking about autism. Where do you think when we read the Joseph story? Of course, we're talking about autism. What do you think I'm teaching in the Hebrew school when we're looking at that story? And we talk about exclusion and inclusion and autism. You know, what, what, what do you think we're, we're raising money for? What do you think that Rabbi Artson, Brad Artson, like the lead, you know, one of the great leaders of the conservative movement, he spent so much of his time creating places for, uh, for autistic children and individuals and teenagers at Camp Ramah. That's like one of our biggest initiatives. So like people make assumptions about who we are and what we do. And I feel like we're too silent in the face of it. And I say, of course, I'm at USCJ conference. I want to hear about all the great things that are done that aren't done at synagogues, because like maybe we don't have any good stories to tell. We have great stories to tell. I guess what I'm asking all of us to do is, if we're comfortable, not participate in the slander that is in the temple, that fulfilling things are not happening, and important things are not happening, and the things that we need to carry forward in our society. So, yes. It's true. Not everyone is breaking down the door to get into temple, but maybe they should be. Shabbat Shalom.